Hello and welcome to the Steal My Name podcast. I'm your host, Bob Barrow. It's time for episode 17, which brings us to the end of Comfort Movie Month. I hope you've enjoyed it. Uh, I know you guys have been listening to the episodes. I hope that there's some joy that you've been able to draw from this. I hope you've gone back and revisited these films or found your, been inspired to dig out your own comfort movies and, you know, just do whatever you can to get yourself through these, through these yucky times. So I thought I've been doing one movie here because I know things got a little crazy there with the Stuart Gordon monster one, but I've just been doing one movie each time here, but to bring us out of this month and into May, I thought, why not the hell with it? We'll do two. Don't worry, I'm not going to do four, five, six, seven, eight movies again, at least for a little while. I think even for me, I think by the end of the Stuart Gordon one, you could even hear in my voice that I was a little tired. So, no, two movies. So, this month, so far, it's been light fare. You know, the real, you know, traditional forms of comfort movies. You know, things we watched as kids, animation, uplifting things, things that get you through a rough day. But for me, one of my favorite things in the world, beyond all the animated movies and stuff we talked about, is trash. Bad movies. I get so much joy and love from these films that I figured it would be it would be irresponsible of me. It would be off message, off brand for me to get out of comfort movie month without taking some time to talk about all of the joy you can get from a bad movie. Now, my history with bad movies really comes down to riffing. Even as little kids, we would sit and watch movies with my parents and my dad would be throwing zingers out at the screen. And that's where I learned to do that. And we'd be sitting there and something goofy would happen in the movie. Dad would make a joke or I'd make a joke. And sometimes a good riff lands and sometimes it just falls flat in the room. And that that hurts. That's a that's a tough thing to deal with. But, you know, it's it's a movie. You have time for hundreds of them. So that's where I started to develop that affinity for it. And into high school, getting into horror and stuff, there's no shortage of bad movies. I think horror fans, exploitation fans, we're going to dig through more bad movies than the average film person in an attempt to find the jewels underneath. But sometimes during that search, the garbage and the trash you find can be just as thrilling as the good stuff, you know. So that's what I'm going to talk about today. The the best of the worst. Now, I get I'm trying to explain the joy of trashy films to people that don't enjoy them. It's tough. It's its kind of a, it's an uphill battle because you tell somebody, what are you watching? Oh, I'm watching a, a trashy movie. Why? Like I'm watching a bad movie. You're doing that on purpose. Why would you intentionally do that to yourself? But for me, what constitutes a bad movie in terms of this movie is bad, you know, like nicotine is bad for you or drinking antifreeze is bad for you. In that context, the only thing for me that a movie can do to be bad is to be boring. That's it. Really, like now, unless the movie's like fucking racist or something horrible like that, but beyond, you know, gross content like that, that's the only sin a movie can really commit for me is that it's boring. I think it's the only unforgivable sin in a movie. Some of the so-called, you know, quote-unquote worst films ever made are hugely entertaining because they're not boring. Now, there's lots of other reasons in them they might be entertaining, but that's it. The only sin a movie can commit for me is to be dull. 
But the great bad movies, you know, whether they're the acting is terrible, the stories are goofy, the effects are bad, the pacing's weird, anything, as long as it's not dull, I'm fine with it. And usually within those little perfect storm of, you know, of garbage, you find so much that you can love. And when it comes to to riffing a bad movie, that to me is what completes it. That's what kind of elevates it from being a bad movie. You know, these these movies tried so hard. And in a lot of cases, the best bad movies, all they're really missing is help. And that's the audience. And that's where it becomes such a participatory activity. You know, through this, through sitting with your friends or sitting by yourself and riffing the movie and throwing out jokes, you're kind of lending a helping hand to these movies. You're, you're picking them up and helping them be what they always wanted to be, which is just an entertaining time. And I like to think that that's a great, that's a good, noble pursuit that you can help, you know, as... Because right now, there's so many of us, if you're on, if you're locked down or you're in quarantine, really, other than staying in lockdown on quarantine or quarantine, there's not much we can do to help right now. But there are plenty of bad movies out there that need your helping hand. I feel like Sarah McLaughlin music should be playing and like poor, beat up movie cases should be walking across the scene or walking across the screen, which I guess is a horrible way to try and flip that feed the children message. But sometimes you have to go out there and collect for the for the poor neglected films out there. So that's what we're looking at today. So we're going to look at two of my favorite bad movies. Now, these are not... Hmm. Bad movies come in many varieties. Okay? There's your really dingy everything completely failed, but by failing completely, it makes it wonderful movies. Things like Plan 9 from Outer Space, Miami Connection, Rotor, Cyborg Cop 2, great movies like that. The ones I'm going to be talking about today, these are real movies. These have real budgets, there's real actors in them made by real producers, but something goes so wonderfully awry with them that they become just trash classics. So for today, I'm going to be looking at Stephen King's Maximum Overdrive and the Patrick Swayze classic Roadhouse. So we're going to start with Maximum Overdrive. Stephen King movies at this point are almost a genre unto themselves. There are so many of them, starting with obviously Brian De Palma's Carrie in 76, and then that just opened the floodgates. Movies like Pet Cemetery, The Shining, Firestarter, Children of the Corn, Sleepwalkers, Lawnmower Man, Cat's Eye, Cujo, Dead Zone, Dreamcatchers, Stand By Me, Shawshank Redemption, Green Mile, Miss Misery. The list goes on and on and on and on and on. That's just a few. It's almost easier at this point to to talk about the King books that haven't been adapted to film or screen than it is to try and pick out the ones that have. There's just so many. Now... King is not a director. He is a writer, obviously. And this is his one and only directing feature or film that he directed. Now, he's been involved with lots of his other adaptations, whether it's in a cameo or consulting or with the television miniseries, maybe executive producing or screenwriting or adapting his own work. But the reason that this film came about is that 
There were so many King movies coming to the market during the, the late 70s and into the 80s, and they were being met with very mixed reviews. The ones that were great were great. The ones that were bad, people were really pissed about because they weren't capturing the material. So King decided that, hey, if everyone else is doing this and they're getting such poor reviews, I'm going to do one myself. I can do this better. Obviously, I wrote it. I know people that make movies. I'm Stephen King. It's this perfect storm of hubris and cocaine. (laughs) It's really, really what brought this movie around because this is nearing the height of Stephen King's drug abuse. So it's a perfect time for him to go off and make a film. Now, the movie itself is based off his short story, Trucks. And like so many of his other films, especially his early fi- the early films, it came out of the Night Shift collection, which was his first short story collection. That book produced movies like The Graveyard Shift, The Mangler, Sometimes They Come Back, Children of the Corn, Lawnmower Man, even though barely an adaptation, uh, The Ledge and Quitters, Inc. turned up in Cat's Eye, an anthology film, and countless dollar baby movies that came out of that, uh, which included Dar- Frank Darabont's The Woman in the Room, his first introduction to Stephen King material. So that collection is is vintage King. So it's, it's a perfect place for him to go and and look around for a story instead of writing something completely original. So let's do a synopsis before I forget. Now, trust me, it's very important that you know the synopsis of this movie. Otherwise, you might be lost when trying to watch it. A group of people try to survive when machines start to come alive and become homicidal. Yeah, um, I, I wish that was... Actually, no, I don't wish. That is the synopsis, and that's fucking perfect. Because that's exactly what you want to hear. Machines on a rampage. Fucking amazing. Like, just find someone that doesn't watch a lot of horror movies and go, Hey, did you know that Stephen King directed a movie? What? He made a movie? I thought he was just a writer. No, my friend. What's it about? Machines that come to life and go homicidal. Well, that tracks. No one will be surprised. Now, this film, it lands more in the sci-fi horror category than it does in straight horror. And I think that might have thrown a lot of people for a loop. I assume that if at the time people would have been expecting a much more hardcore Stephen King movie, that if he was going to step in and direct one himself, he was going to go right for the throat. That is not what happened. This is, you know, standard 50s cheese sci-fi. Comet passes Earth, green goo surrounds the planet, machines come to life and go on a rampage. There's even an opening text scrawl, and I'm a complete sucker for opening text scrolls in sci-fi movies. I absolutely fucking love it. Now, in terms of an adaptation, it's an incredibly faithful Adaptation. I've read the short story a few times because the Night Shift Collection is such a fucking good book. And it's very, very faithful. And that's that's good to see always. You know, sometimes King adaptations stay faithful and that's really good. Sometimes they go super wide of the material and that's really good. You also have the opposite. Sometimes they go wide and it completely just sucks like the new Pet Cemetery. Sometimes it goes wide like the new It, and it's a very successful film. 
Here, though, he stayed really close to his original book, which is both a good and a bad thing. The good part is the parts of the story that worked, we get to see presented on the big screen. The dialogue that works so well on the page, we get to hear said out loud on the big screen. The bad part is so much of the dialogue that works well on paper, we get to hear said out loud. So <laughs> King is King is a discovery writer. Now, what that means is he doesn't plot. He is always stated that he is vehemently opposed to plotting and outlining that he doesn't trust it and it doesn't work for him. So it means as he comes up with a scenario in his head and then he just starts to write. He just starts to work characters into the story. He's always said, I don't trust plot, I trust story. So when you're a discovery writer, that means that whatever feels right in the moment, you just run with it. And you start lobbing these kind of Hail Mary passes up in the air as a storyteller. And you hope that by the time you get to the end of your book, you're in a position to start catching some of these passes and that the story works as a whole. Sometimes, a lot of times, he puts these things up, he puts those shots up in the air and just crushes those connections at the end. Sometimes not so much because he doesn't know where he's going. He doesn't know what he's working towards. He said sometimes he might have an idea, but he always lets the characters show him where things are going to go. Now, while being able to think on your feet is integral for a filmmaker, it's not a discovery art by its very nature. It requires planning and plotting and constant revision and being as impossibly prepared as you can be from the outset. All of these things run completely counter to King's natural skill set. His genius is he sits down at the typewriter or the computer and he just opens those doors in his head and just goes. That's just not how movies are made. You, you can't rely on that. The, the great bad dialogue aside, because there are some absolute zingers in this film, the movie is populated by a wonderful assortment of classic King characters. There's the, the good guy, our hero with a complicated past that's just trying to make good on life. The crooked businessmen, Jack Preachers, blue-collar parents, people who are trying to start their lives but only to have them cut short, i.e. the newlyweds. A tenacious kid or 12. These characters are, are ripe for drama, and they are top shelf in King's toolbox of characters. He's written about these people countless times. But despite having all of these tools, all of these classic King archetypes, a very straightforward concept of machines come to life, humans have to deal with machines that have come to life. Despite all of this, Stephen King isn't a filmmaker at all. Even his history of adapting his own work is spotty. He is referred to Maximum Overdrive as cocaine the movie, and it is really true. He had no experience directing films, hadn't made a short, hadn't done anything, and he had no business directing films. But that's what makes this movie so fucking fun. How else would you get moments 
where like the electric carving knife going rabid and attacking the the waitress, the pop machine and a fucking steamroller murdering children, the the murderous ice cream van because ice cream vans aren't creepy enough on their own. Yeardley Smith screaming her head off. It's so wonderful to see Lisa Simpson actually not being Lisa Simpson, even though you can really hear her in her voice. The, the There's a whole dialogue exchange where a guy's taking a shit and you can hear him taking a shit. The what you heard at the start. The we made you. And she does that a couple times in the movie. <laughs> and all set to an ACDC soundtrack. An experienced filmmaker might not necessarily make all these decisions. And especially an artist of King's caliber, you wouldn't expect that from King initially. But... I think going past the, the, the cocaine, the movie, and all that kind of stuff, because King has, he has a sense of humor about it at this point, because you kind of have to. He was also smart enough to realize, hey, I don't think I have the aptitude for this, and didn't go back and do it again, which is almost a shame, because if this was his first movie, I would have loved to have seen how strange things could have really gone. But looking at King's body of work as a whole as a writer, and I've read most of it. The weirdness here, I don't think is, it's not a one-off. It's not like he was just doing weird little things like this just for this movie. Because King's a discovery writer, his books are full of weird, fucked up, crazy stuff, especially because so much of his body of work was written, or the early part of his work was written while he was a complete out of his mind, fucking alcoholic and drug addict. So of course it's going to be littered with weird shit. But on paper, you get away with so much more stuff. It's like watching a, a subtitled film. You don't necessarily know if the performances are good or if, if anything is working, but there's a tendency for the average audience member to go, oh, it's subtitled, so it must be fancy. You know, like watching El Mariachi. There's people that didn't get that that was a comedy because it's subtitled. It has to be fancy. You cluck and stroke your chin and look at your stock ticker. But when you take these ideas off of the page and put them on film with such a level of naivety naivete, uh, and innocence and complete fucking no skill set, just like how I use that sentence, just a complete and utter lack of the fundamentals of how to translate words to the screen you're left with what amounts to a very stark film. He's just presenting these images to you. It's not a fancy film. It's blue collar. It's directed, I'm sure, mostly by the director of photography trying to help him out. And he's even said that. He didn't know what's crossing the line. What's He has no idea how any of this worked. And that's what's so great. The film, almost like some of his more wacky stories and books has such a sense of playfulness and innocence to it. That's like, fuck it. Let's just go and see what happens. Who the hell knows what's going to happen. I'm going to do whatever I want and go completely wild with this. You want guns? You want craziness? Do it. I'm Stephen King. I'm going to set the whole thing to an ACDC soundtrack. Amazing. Like that is just such a level of, Fuck you, dog. I won't do what you tell me. That it's it's so heartwarming when our heroes, uh, Emilio Estevez, in a career defining performance, and the married guy, 
Um, like it, it's funny. She screams his name so many times in the film, and I can't remember it offhand right now. But it really, really doesn't matter. Curtis, that's it. I'm like, yearly yell for me. Curtis! When they're getting ready to go on their mission to save the, the, the dead preacher, what does King drop into the soundtrack? For those about to rock, we salute you. Genius. When there's a car driving down the highway, what song's playing? Highway to Hell. Brilliant. We need you guys to write an original song for the movie. Okay. What's the song called? Who Made Who? Fucking brilliant. It's a movie that doesn't take itself seriously. Goes completely for broke. Now, could they have done more? Sure. The MPAA went at it and and I'm sure toned back some of the violence. But some of it's a lot more brutal than other parts. But it's just so fucking strange because it it just doesn't know what it's doing. And that's the best kind of bad movie. It's one that is made with the absolute best intentions, but with the minimum amount of skill sets involved beyond enthusiasm. Now there's great character actors all through this movie. It looks good. Everything's lit properly. It's in focus. The remote control stuff is good with the cars and trucks driving around. The effects are good. But because there's such a lack of skill set at the helm, you get just this wonderful cheesy mess. And I don't understand how anybody could hate a movie like Maximum Overdrive. I get at the time that there was probably a lot of disappointment. And I, and I understand that. I can, I can empathize with that. But the fact remains, Stephen King made one of the best bad movies of the entire decade. And the 80s produced a lot of wonderful bad movies. The, the lead truck has the hobgoblin or the green goblin's face on it from Spider-Man. Like what else, like what else can he do for you? Despite not knowing how this process work worked, King did all of this work for you. Not to mention the fact these were the hardest working writers in the business. And he's always giving you a plus material. This is just another thing that he's like, okay, I'll go and do this for you. Fine. I'll do it myself. And it's magical. Yes. Would it have been nice if King had have stepped behind the camera and it turned out, oh shit, I have the aptitude for this that I do as a writer. Amazing. And kind of balanced his career. Like when someone like Clive Barker stepped out from behind the desk and made his films, that would have been nice if we could have gotten another because Barker only made three movies himself and all three of them are, are great. It would have been nice if that had happened with King and if he had have kept going, who knows what would have happened. But the fact that this is the one movie he made and he left this with us, it's such a jewel. It's such a gem. I think it's on Amazon prime. If it, if it, not still, I know it was at one point, but track it down, get your friends together, get a case of beer. Cause this is a Pabst blue ribbon or Miller light movie. If I've ever seen it, and just have a great time. If you take it seriously and get pissed off at it, I can't I can't help you. Like what do you what do you want me to say? That's not what these kind of movies are for. If you sit down to watch a movie like Maximum Overdrive and you're just like I said stroking your chin and clucking, what's the point? Why would you even put that on? You should know better. It's your fault that you had a bad hour and 20 minutes. 
I watched a movie once. I was at a friend's house and we were watching Zombie. The Lucio Fulci zombie and a friend of his was over and just wasn't into the film. And that's fine. Watching Italian horror, it, it's for a lot of people, it's an acquired taste, but it was kind of clucking at it and sitting there like, dude, we know, we all know like, if he was doing a gen and these are real criticisms. Like, it's not like he was just throwing out nonsense. He was genuinely offering real criticism of the movie. But the problem is, you, no one gives a fuck. You, that's not what it's about. And watching something like Maximum Overdrive, you're not there to talk shit about it. You're there to give it the last little leg up it needs to be a genuinely wonderful time. And that's you. That's all you have to do. You don't have to do really any work. You just have to sit down, press play, or say, tell your Skynet box to play a movie for you. And then whenever you think of something funny, say it out loud and try and make the people around you laugh. If you can't do that or you don't want to do that, I don't know how to help you. I really don't. That, that seems strange to me. But check it out. Go read the story. You could say the story's better in its own way. I guess, maybe, just buy the Night Shift collection. It's incredible. You you won't be let down. Those are There's some absolutely wonderful stories in there. But yes, Stephen King's Maximum Overdrive is always a comfort movie for me. I can pick it up at any time. It's one of those movies where, you know, kind of Thursday at work, where it's like, fuck, this has been a slog of a week. Man, I'm watching Maximum Overdrive tomorrow night. And it just, it'll pick you up. Especially because we can't go driving anywhere right now. You know, like I've said before on the show, perfect time for me to get my G2, and I can't fucking go anywhere. That's all we need right now, is for the cars to become sentient and start attacking us. That would just be perfect. But yes, maximum overdrive. Please go watch it. Keeping on our southern fried theme, I guess, because these are both kind of, you know, crispy Kentucky fried movies, is a film that is so magically near and dear to my heart. And that is Roadhouse. This is from 89, and the synopsis is as follows, okay? Are you ready? You thought the synopsis for Maximum Overdrive was a slice of fried gold? Wait. A tough bouncer is hired to tame a dirty bar. It's perfect. That is, that is this, brevity is the soul of wit. That's what that is. That's like chocolate and peanut butter, milk and cookies. It's like a cigarette and a beer, okay? That is, it's like flipping your pillow over and resting it on the, your head on the cool side. That's fucking stunning. And it's directed by a guy named Rowdy. Again, I, I really don't need to give you more information than that. That's like watching an action movie directed by a guy named Gunn. Or watching a porno directed by someone named Dick. Or, you know, Jane Vagina. And they did, that's not a stage name. That's their actual name. Now, I don't know if Rowdy is his actual name, but it doesn't really matter. Now, Roadhouse is, is a trash classic. This is top shelf trashery, okay? I came to the movie somewhat late. Only about six years ago, maybe? I have a, a troubled history with Patrick Swayze you could say. Uh, now, rest in peace. Swayze's obviously a legend. But I'm going to tell a story here that I've been getting laughed at for the last couple days by a friend of mine. So I'll tell it now and forever hold my peace on the subject. When I was in high school and even younger, I did a lot of theater, did a lot of acting. 
And obviously for a lot of people in high school, the senior plays are a big deal if you're a theater kid. Now, when it came time for our senior play, I was offered the, the lead in the play. Uh, that's not hubris. It's not anything. I'm not bragging. That is, that's just what happened. And I accepted the part just like saying, of course, I'll do it. Yes, I want to be the lead in the senior class play. That's fucking incredible. That's a dream come true. My drama teacher decided that she was going to adapt Dirty Dancing. Now, she didn't buy the rights to it. She just spent the entire summer watching the movie and writing it down, taking out all the dirty bits and calling it Dare to Dance. So when I accepted the, the role... I knew what it was. I knew there was dancing involved, but I had never seen Dirty Dancing. So the end of the school year comes, uh, grade 11, when I accepted the role, we were breaking for the summer, and the whole cast got together to watch the movie in drama classroom. And I proceeded, sitting right up front with the other leads, to slink out of my chair and slowly puddle onto the floor knowing what was expected of me because yes if you know me personally there's obviously no one more skilled as a performer to step into the shoes of Patrick Swayze especially when it comes to to dancing and uh and and dirtiness yes it's obviously me so we we did the play and it was i i'm people seem to have a good time it's I don't know. It's that that kind of soured me to Patrick Swayze for a long time because I I took my fair share of ribbing from people when they found out that I had done it. So, especially knowing me with like long hair and a beard and all that stuff, I'm like you played Patrick Swayze, get the fuck out of here. No way. So, I kind of avoided his movies. You know, I I had no real interest in it, but Roadhouse kept popping up. Like, you have to see Roadhouse. You have to see Roadhouse. So I saw Roadhouse. And oh my God, Roadhouse. <laughs> like, it's just a fucking masterpiece. It's a masterpiece. An absolute masterclass on trashy, cheesy filmmaking. The movie was made in an era before things became hyper self-aware. It's a bit of a throwback. There is not a single hint, eyelash, snippet, sand, dust particle of irony or self-aware humor. It is played dead fucking straight the whole time. And that's what makes it magical. It would be very easy to do a movie like this and just kind of play it up a little silly, you know, make it a little self-aware about what's going on. Because it is a classic archetype of an action movie. It is one of the standard archetypes, okay? Follow me on this. You ready? It's lesson time. A drifter character comes into a small town and ends up clashing with a businessman, landowner, miscellaneous guy who has a stranglehold on the small town for his own nefarious reasons. I think we can all think of a few titles, you know, offhand, nowhere to run, best of the best Three, Malone, et cetera, et cetera. Like the Walking Tall. Uh, I think the first Exterminator has the same plot. It, the list goes on and on and on and on and on. You know, and the bad guy here is so over the top. You know, driving in the wrong lane while smiling, burning people out of their business, 
smacking around his own guys. He even has a room full of dead animals and a monster truck that he drives gleefully through a business in front of the whole town. Like, you, you can't beat that. Like, every box in the bad movie category gets checked here. It's all there for you. I, I, again, I'm having a hard time even talking about it, but I'll keep talking about it because I fucking love Roadhouse. Uh, just as a, as a side fact here, Jeff Healy should have been in every movie ever set in a bar. You know, he could have been like the shit kicker Stan Lee. You know, every shit kicker movie ever made, Jeff Healy had a cameo. And we could have gone back and looked and just played like the Stan Lee cameo game. Because he's, one's music's incredible, but he's just so cute and fun and charming here. And it's, any chance you get to watch a blind man wail on his guitar is always incredible. Oh, and Tito Lariva shows up at the start. So for Desperado fans, it's a little Snapple fact there. I've seen this movie a lot. I've watched, I watch it, you could say, I want to say semi-regularly, but it might be regularly because it never stops being fun. I love showing it to people. I love talking about it. It doesn't. Watching it this time for prep, I had kind of a, an odd revelation about what this kind of movie is because it is part of that. It's hyper-masculine. It's hyper-violent. It's, it's men who are men and women are women and like never the twain shall meet unless it's in the sheets. Like, but looking at it, it's a live-action Harlequin novel, but it, if it was written for men to read. Okay, here's my argument on this. So we have the handsome drifter comes into town. He's a legend. He's legendary. People know him by his first name alone. He's a tough guy of the absolute highest order. Okay, he doesn't watch TV. He rarely drinks. He reads philosophy and has a degree from it from NYU in philosophy. He fights only when pushed. He's covered in sexy scars uh, he smokes, but because you, but without all the smell and gross breath, and he hits the road when the job's done, but maybe, just maybe, he might stay for the right woman. But only after he rips a dude's throat out. That's a, it's a, that's a Harlequin novel. It's cheesy gender archetypes of the absolute highest order, okay? He's the noble brute that will hurt everyone except you, okay? Because when you look at those kind of the really brutal gender stereotypes, there's the noble savage and there's the whore with the heart of gold. So there's the, the noble brute that you can, you can tame them for women or men, whatever. You can tame that beast that he'll protect you and kill everyone else, but he's yours and would never, and is always so gentle with you. You flip that and we have the, the whore with the heart of gold, you know, you can, she'll give all that up just for you, but still probably remember all of her old tricks just for you, right? It's nonsense. They're nonsensical stereotypes, but they're presented here perfectly. And like, if you think about it, if you flip this and you told Roadhouse from the perspective of the doctor that he falls in love with or the waitress at the bar, you have a Harlequin novel. You have, that's the story. And that's what's hilarious is you have this over-the-top, masculine, violent, macho movie that reads with one or two changes exactly the same way as romance novels. The kind of books that guys that would have gone to see this movie originally would have sneered or snide at or mocked. 
it's the same thing. And that's fine. Of course it's fine. Who the hell cares? Of course you watch something like Roadhouse for the same reason you watch something like Commando or Die Hard or any of those, these kind of films, is because we're living vicariously. We're living out a fantasy through these films. And this time I'm sitting there watching going like, holy shit, it's totally true. He keeps taking off his shirt too. And that's wonderful. It's absolutely wonderful. Now, it would be remiss to talk about Roadhouse without talking about the man, the myth, the legend, Sam fucking Elliot. Now, if they could have built the space shuttles out of his hair in this movie, none of those would have exploded. It's fucking amazing. He is so handsome in this film that even people that don't like Roadhouse just... Say to like go next time you talk to your mom, just bring up Sam Elliott and watch them quiver. Say it to a man, and you'll probably get the same reaction out of it. He's stunning in this film, and he's so believable as this kind of southern fried shit kicker, you know, delivering incredible lines like the big giant tough guys, like, Do you want to fight Dickless? And his only response is, Well, I sure ain't gonna show you my dick, and then kick punches him right in the balls that's that's brilliant that's like what else can i say like sam elliott is incredible in this movie and he's well he's incredible in anything from this to serious work all the way up to his his stint on grace and frankie which i wish he had done more of but yeah he is he is a an integral part of this movie speaking of actors Some actors just don't have a natural chemistry with each other. Sometimes it's a bad script that keeps them apart. Sometimes it's bad direction. Sometimes it's just the actors. You get actors that just don't get along on set. You get actors that are are friendly with it and are really good friends, so playing romance can be awkward with them. The love story in this movie feels like a combination of all of those problems. It's so forced. It's so awkward. And their love scene, quote unquote, might go down in history as one of the worst ever committed to film. It's not quite as bad as the one in the room, but it's close. It's so bad. She even laughs. The actress laughs. Kelly Lynch, I think is her name, laughs during the scene. And I can't tell if she's just in character and thought it was appropriate or broke character to try and break the tension between them because it's so bad. But her and Sam Elliott, that dance they have at the bar, there's some actual sex. There's more sexual tension in that scene than there is in the love scene. Like, it's, it's wonderful. Great bad movies have to do a lot of things, can, or I should say not have to, but can do a lot of things wrong to become so, oh, oh, right. One of the things that they can do is, beyond all the technical and performance problems, is when they try and go for pathos and depth that isn't there. At all. So that just kind of elevates the humor to to a whole new level. Here, they're trying to inter, they're trying to make Dalton, Patrick Swayze, seem so tortured 
by his violent past, but he just can't break away because it's all he knows how to do, where it's obvious that that's not all he knows how to do. So they're trying to put him in kind of a first blood situation by the end of this movie. You know, the violent man who gave it, gave up violence, but was pushed back into violence. Okay. But they still wanted to have all of the spectacle and the ballyhoo, you know, they wanted the emotional depth of first blood, but all of the over the top macho nonsense of first blood part two, love it you know i love both those films but you can't have both there's a reason why those are two very separate films you can't make the -the over-the-top action silly spectacle and still retain the level of incredible depth that the first rambo movie has so you you can't have both unless you're trying to have just an incredible silly hoot nanny, and in that case, it, this movie goes in just fucking end zone catch on this one. You catch in the end zone? Yeah, I think that's a football term. Go sport, but it's so it's so fucking bad in all of the exact perfect ways. Now they try; they're they're reaching here for some credibility uh, from a thematic sense. You know, the the townspeople rallying to save Swayze at the end. That's a genuinely nice touch. It would have been so easy for Swayze to lead them all into battle and they all get killed and then he has to kill the bad guy at the end. But he refuses to do it. He doesn't can't rip out another throat. Two throats in one day is above his threshold after ripping out the the lieutenant's throat. Cause in a movie like this, the bad guy always has to have a lieutenant always have to have a mu- the muscle that the good guy has to fight first to earn his fight of with the final bad guy. So yeah, the townspeople bust in and then blow the bad guy away. So that that's a nice touch. And then immediately, you know, when the cops are like, who saw what? And like, we didn't see nothing. And then Rowdy spins his camera in the room full of dead animals to the diorama of the hear no evil, speak no evil, see no evil monkeys. That's just like Scorsese, Kurosawa, like eat your hearts out. You're obviously not trying hard enough in any of your films because I haven't seen one of you like get a shot like that on film once. And you might as well put the camera down because that might go down in history as the greatest single shot in the history of cinema, short of everything Ed Wood ever shot. But no, it's, it's fucking incredible. It's absolutely incredible. This is the kind of movie that bad movie fans, you live for. It's legendary. You can't have a bad time with Roadhouse unless you want to have a bad time. Swayze can't do jiu-jitsu or martial arts, so my friend Dawson loves to bitch about the, the katas that he's doing out on the out by the river because they're just kind of made up you know the giant high-waisted pleated pants that everyone's wearing the 80s haircuts the music the everything i can't i don't know what else to say like i really don't it's perfect this comes down to that rare category of perfect movies and it doesn't have to be you know it's something i've always i've always maintained and i still maintain this that it doesn't, it doesn't have to be, like I said, you know, The Godfather or Goodfellas or things like that or 
Truffaut films or you know, The Bicycle Thief, any of that shit, to be considered a perfect film. This film set out to entertain people. And it's just like Maximum Overdrive. And it's one of the single most entertaining films I've ever watched. Is it competent? Technically, yes. Everything's shot well, it's in focus. You know, there's real actors, just like Maximum Overdrive. Technically, they're checking all the competency boxes. But it's just this perfect storm of the time, society, the director, the writers, everybody involved making this little innocent jewel and letting it drift like the Goblin King, you know, spinning the glass balls and letting them drift off into the sky. It's just perfect. What more can I say? It's fucking Roadhouse. Like, Roadhouse. Like, just just go watch these movies. You will not be disappointed in any way. They are a far cry from the comfort movies we've been talking about so far this month, but they warm your heart just as much as those if you'll let them. Perfect movies. On to Star Trek. Uh, We're on episode 17. Uh, This aired March 30th, 1993, and is called, see how many times it's going to take me to pronounce this, Dramatic Persona? Wow. Or Dramatis? Dramatis Persona? I don't know. I, I'm sure somebody's sitting out there right now and going, uh, Bob, you're a writer and you don't know how to say those words. But whatever. I feel good about it. So, synopsis. The entire station's command staff, save Odo, become power-hungry and vie to defeat each other by forming secret alliances and plotting assassinations. Odo tries to figure out the cause of this mysterious behavior. Okay. This is a very standard Star Trek trope. Something infects the crew and makes them act squirrely. Whether they get all sex crazy or violent, it's a go-to plot line. It could be a, a space virus, an alien influence, psychic influence, X, Y, or Z. It's, it's very standard. While it is fun to see the characters really play against type, it's disposable. That's the unfortunate part of this episode is it is completely disposable. These playing against types and acting violent or conniving or weird, they would execute this scenario better in the coming seasons when they do their Mirror Universe episodes, which revisits the Mirror Universe from the original Star Trek series. I can't help but think that this idea would have played better in the later seasons when we actually knew the characters better. Because they're forming alliances, conniving against each other, and I get it, there's psychic energy balls in their head, or psychic balls of energy, or energy balls that are psychic, doesn't matter, that are in their head and are making them kind of recreate this ongoing battle that's, or a power struggle that's been happening for who who knows how many hundreds of thousands of years. But if we had have known the characters better, if their relationships were clearer and we were really emotionally invested with them as an audience, watching the deception and the deceit take place, I think it would have had more dramatic weight. I think it would have been more impactful to see these friendships that we had and personal and emotional relationships that we had not just witnessed evolve, but we'd become invested in as an audience start to crack and break apart. And as we're trying to figure out the mystery of what's going on and why they're behaving this way, I think it would have worked better later on. There really is no standout moment. 
Um, Odo does some investigating. That's always great. But everything's kind of silly. You know, Major Kira, again, it's it's everything they would do in the Mirror Universe episodes. You know, Major Kira's a bad guy, so she becomes slinky. Like, what to see Dax be forgetful is, is cute. Kind of plays a bit of a dummy because she's so smart. But beyond that, meh. It's not bad. You know, it's not like that uh, Alamarine Carry On Home episode, which is probably the worst episode of the whole series. But it's... It's meh. It's another one of those episodes that I think drove people away from Trek or from DS9 that hurt its credibility because, yeah, meh. That's that's my total review of this episode, meh. But something that is not meh is this week's book. I read Michael Crichton's Prey from 2002. Now, that is P-R-E-Y. It's the sixth or so Crichton book I've read. And just like the rest of his work, I say the best of his work that I've read, it is compulsively readable. Oh my God. His prose are so accessible. I had read about a hundred pages, it's about a 500 page book. And I sat down, you know, six 30 in the evening or whatever. Like I'm going to do a bit of reading and then get on to some other stuff in the evening. And then I ended up finishing the book. In, in one shot, 400 pages in one go. I didn't get distracted. I didn't get tired. Nothing. Because I read a lot, obviously, but you, you still get to a certain point where you start crossing the 200-page mark or so, and you're like, okay, your eyes are getting a little heavy, and you just can't keep going. Not this time. Every time I looked up at the page number, I was like 70, 80 pages from the last time I checked. I was like, holy shit. Crichton does that. He makes it so effortless when he executes it well that you, you, you're just chewing through the book without any kind of difficulty, no matter the concepts that he's throwing at you and the technology that he's explaining in depth that you have to, that that's your buy-in or that's his buy-in. And as we've talked about before, and it's easy and there's some big concepts at play here. He's explaining hardcore computer programming. He's explaining nanotechnology where, you know, how we create difference between artificial life and artificial intelligence. And this early explosion of computer systems that would start to act with a sense of independence, uh, kind of like the computer animation software uh, that they used on Lord of the Rings. Massive to generate the battles. And he's giving you a lot of information, heavy technical information, but he presents it in a way that is so effortless and you feel really smart reading it <laughs> and that you, you just bounce through that right back to the characters. Now, this one has more character development, I would say, than some of his other novels, at least the ones I've read. And it is a nice, it's a nice change of pace. Uh, it's... It doesn't amount to much, you know, but it does make the characters feel more real than they usually do. There's there's an, a genuine emotional stake or a genuine sense of emotional uh, trauma at stake 
than than normally. Whether it's just a, a a physical stake, like oh, we're in a you know, there's dinosaurs or there's a virus or we're under the water with a weird alien that's making us act crazy. Here, it's it's a man whose wife starts to act weird and he thinks she's having an affair and it starts to make sense. But then we find out that it's this artificial intelligence run wild on them. It again, it doesn't amount to anything at the end. It's just kind of brushed over this horrible traumatic loss he goes through, but you don't give a shit. You don't, because you're so engrossed with the novel. It's it's incredible. I My sister read the Jurassic Park books when she was younger, and Congo, because it was the movie, but then kind of got out of Crichton, because she doesn't enjoy, and I get it, doesn't enjoy all the, the tech, the hardcore technical information dumps that he does. I, on the other hand, love that. So I got into Crichton with... The Andromeda Strain, and then I've just been picking through his books since then. Like I said, I think I've read seven or eight of them, or six or seven of them. And this one is right up there, I would say, with Sphere. Of the the two that were the most compulsively readable. Um, the other ones were all good. Uh, Dragon's Teeth was a trunk novel for a reason, but I've talked about that in an earlier episode. But, no, Crichton's Prey... Check it out. Order it. Support a local bookseller. Uh, if Don't go to Amazon if you don't have to. Don't go to Chapters if you don't have to. Call around to a local bookstore in your area. Call around to a local used bookstore and see if they have it. Because you will not be disappointed. You will get an absolute blasty blast out of this, out of this book. Recommendations. Uh, for movies, I would say another great... Comet Comes to Earth, Calamity Ensues movie, uh, Night of the Comet, an excellent movie. And uh, for Keeping with the King, Children of the Corn. Children of the Corn was my first Stephen King movie obsession. It was one of my first obsessions as a horror fan after Hellraiser. So I have to recommend those two. They're not bad movies in the sense that Maximum Overdrive and Roadhouse are, but thought I'd mix it up a little bit there. In terms of a book... If you like Michael Crichton, there's a very good chance you will like the book Relic. Uh, There was a movie in the 90s that I have not seen, but I was told uh, by a friend that the book was wonderful, and it was. It was another one, like a two-day read, and it's a big book. It It reads like Michael Crichton, but with a little bit more character development, not just situational development. But check it out. You will not be disappointed. Next month, we are into the month of May. Now, with the, obviously, you know, COVID man, with everything theatrically being pushed back or, you know, bumped to later in the year or into next year while the theaters are closed, this kind of screwed up my plan because I had planned to do a month of content building up to the release of Black Widow to the new Marvel movie. But obviously that's not going to work out. But I decided I'm going to still do superhero content because after comfort movies, we all need we all need some heroes these days, something to help lift us up and save us from our doldrums. So all through the month of February, February, I don't even know what day it is. Month. All through the month of May, we're going to I'm going to be looking at superhero films. So there's going to be some popular ones, some obscure ones, some weird ones, going to be making the argument for some off the uh, beaten path ones, but I'm going to be starting the month with Blade and X-Men and looking at how this modern resurgence, the modern era of superhero movies that we live in, how they really started, in my opinion, 
with those two films. So join me next week for episode 18, kick off Superhero Month with Blade and X-Men. In the meantime, you can find me on Facebook at Steal My Name Cast. You can find me on SoundCloud at the Steal My Name Podcast, same as with on iTunes. Be sure to like, follow, subscribe, share, message, post, meme, gif. Yeah, any of those things. Anything computer-related, please do. I hope you guys have been enjoying the episodes. I know people have been listening. You know, we're all stuck inside doing this together. So if you've heard an episode and you've enjoyed it, share it around. That would that would comfort me. That would make my day. I would really appreciate that. So one more round of thank yous. Thank you guys very much. And until next time, remember to steal someone else's name because this one is already taken.